This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening and welcome. My name is Patrice Petro and I'm the director of the Carsey Wolf Center. Today we are thrilled to have Scott Frank with us to talk about his most recent project, The Queen's Gambit, which he adapted for for Netflix from the novel by Walter Tevis, who is the author of Pool Hall Sagas, The Hustler and the Color of Money. The Queen's Gambit is Netflix's most watched limited series to date and tells the story of Beth Harmon, an orphan and chess prodigy who struggles with addiction and an addiction to the game and eventually becomes Grandmaster. Scott Frank has had an expansive career. His screenplays include, among many others, Little Man Tate, Dead Again, Get Shorty, and Minority Report. Most recently, he wrote, directed, and produced the Netflix series Godless, which was nominated for 12 Emmy Awards, including nominations for writing and directing, as well as a nomination from the Directors and Writers Guilds. Like Godless, The Queen's Gambit also explores female characters who refuse the gender norms of their time. Scott Frank is no stranger to the University of California at Santa Barbara. As many of you know, he earned his bachelor's degree in film studies here in 1982, and his first script, Little Man Tate, was one that he began working on as a student in the late Paul Lazarus's screenwriting class. As fate would have it, our paths have actually crossed. They did in the spring of 1979, when I was the grader for Professor Charles Wolfe's course on heroes, heroines, and sex girls, and Scott was a student in that course. It was a large lecture course, so we never met, but we were both forever linked to Chuck, who was a mentor to us both. Scott has also been a great friend and supporter of the department and the Carsey Wolf Center over decades. On behalf of the department and the campus, I offer my sincere thanks to him for all of his support over so many years. It's now my great pleasure to invite Scott Frank to the screen. Hello, Hello. everybody. Hello. Um, Thanks so much for joining us, Scott. There's so much to say about this fantastic series. The actors, the story, the settings, the decor, the costumes, the cinematography, the music. Uh, we most likely cannot cover it all, but I'm certain that our audience members will have questions that I might have missed. So to begin, I, I was really struck by the similarities between your first screenplay, Little Man Tate, and your latest work, The Queen's Gambit. Can you tell us more about what appeals to you about stories of child prodigies and the burdens of the gift of genius? Um, probably because I don't suffer from that gift. Um, I would say with this, I'd always wanted to explore the, the price of genius and little man Tate, I did it in a way I was much younger. I wrote that script, um, at UCSB. I was 22, 21 when I first wrote it. Um, and it was about, I was about 28, I think when we made the film and it, it didn't explore it in a deep enough way for me. Um, so, so being able to do it again, and when I read the Tevis book many, many years later, I thought, well, this is a much better way into that subject and tried to make it as a movie for many years off and on, um, um, and eventually abandoned it. And others had tried to make the, make it as a movie for many years as well until, um, after Godless, I thought it would make a terrific miniseries. I thought that was the best way to, to kind of not not have it become a sports movie. You know, it is in a, in a certain way, but to sort of make it about other things as well. Yeah. 
Well, as you said, you know, Little Man Take was your original screenplay, and you adapted The Queen's Gambit from Walter Tevis's 1983 novel. Um, and as you mentioned or alluded to, you weren't the first director to be interested in the novel. Uh, Bernardo Bertolucci and Walter Hill were interested in adapting it. Heath Ledger was preparing to adapt it at the time of his death. Why do you think the novel has been so enticing for all of these people, for directors? And what is unique about your own approach to it? Well, I think it's a couple of things. I think it's unique. It's unusual. I think that the book, when you read the book, is reads like a thriller. It's a real page turner. You can't stop reading it. And I give the book to people all the time. And every single time I say, you know, it's about a chess prodigy. And they say, no, thank you. And I say, just read it. And they read it and they say, thank you. Um, I mean, it's really, it's a tremendous, tremendous book. And the story for me, I always felt it was um, actually kind of um, cinematic. I really thought it really was cinematic for me. Um, so that was a huge, huge, um, uh, the first thing for me was that I just, it felt like a movie right off the bat, even though it's about something that is inherently not cinematic. Yeah, yeah. Well, while you follow, I've, I've read the novel twice, um, and while you follow it quite closely, you make changes as well. I wanted to ask you about a few of these. I'm not going to ask about all of them. Uh, but for instance, and strikingly, Be Benny's uh, uh, chic friend Cleo in the miniseries is French. Uh, in the novel, she is American, and her name is Jenny. Uh, the character does not emerge again in Paris, and Beth is on time for her match with Borgoff, and she's not hungover. Can you tell us more about why you made these particular changes changes in, in adapting the novel and why the Paris story opens the series? Because it doesn't open the novel. Because I wanted people to know that Anya Taylor-Joy was coming, <laughs> that this is not gonna be a show about a little girl and it's not gonna be your father's chess show. Um, it's gonna be something very, very different. And so the opening in Paris was sort of the key of the whole song and that's why I decided to open with that. Um, the book obviously doesn't, and you don't need to, again, because it's so compelling right off the bat, but I thought people are going to watch and see this little girl, and they're going to think, oh, it's about a young girl and, and an orphanage, and, and they're going to they're get the wrong idea of what it really is. So that's why I chose to open there. In terms of, of um, Cleo and having her be French, I just thought it was more interesting. I just thought, you know, um, I, you know, in the book, there's a lot about Beth sort of, you know, experimenting, you know, with just sort of watching other people, you know, be sexual um, and being curious about it from a very young age. And I just thought um, Cleo might be a really interesting character. Jenny seemed boring to me on the page. There wasn't anything to her. And I felt like there's a missed opportunity there to just create something more interesting and also more visual. Just it was just a more visual thing and to pay her off in Paris. And I felt like her just losing in Paris because he beat her. We already did that in Mexico City. So I wanted to have a different kind of chess match. And so I thought her being hung over again, she's her own antagonist, which is what makes the story so interesting. So I thought that by creating something that might be her own undoing um, would be would be way more interesting than just having a girl named Jenny who shows up for an hour. The mother is also, her real mother is not in the book either. None of those scenes are in the book. And um, there been, it's funny, there have been a lot of articles, either pro and con, about the changes I've made in the book. And 
Um, but nobody's noticed or written about the fact that her mother is non-existent in the novels. It's just, she's kind of trailer kid. Um, the mother is an alcoholic. Her mother doesn't drink in, in the story at all. She's a genius because I wanted this sort of flowers for Algernon thing where she could see what her future might be because I'm talking about genius and her worry about going insane. And everyone is talking about the fact that chess players go insane or that geniuses sometimes that genius and madness go together. None of that was in, in the book. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, when I first watched the series, um, I was really, it initially struck me as indebted to the classic women film, women films of the 30s and 40s, films like Stella Dallas from 1937, uh, Mildred Pierce, more the novel from, than, than the 1945 film. But and, and by the way, one of my top three favorite novels of all time. Mildred Pierce. I, me too. Uh, what's most interesting to me, though, is that the, is the treatment of mother-daughter relationships, and especially the role of mothers who sacrifice so that their children can succeed. Um, we're back to the story of Little Man Tate, of course, but I was wondering if you would say more about your interest in stories about phenomenally talented children and their loving but average mothers. How has your thinking about, you said, you were younger when you were writing, when you wrote Little Man Tate. How has your thinking changed or expanded or evolved over the years? I mean, certainly it's different when you're writing as a 22 year old or making this, uh, making the film when you're 28. And then you are a parent, you have children of your own and you live this life. And you're, I, I just wonder if you would comment more about what it is, how you began to think, because it's not just Tevis that's thinking in creative ways about this, but you too. I think about family and the, it's it's less about mothers than it is about family in general, you know, and Godless is about the same thing. It's, you know, everyone thought I was trying to make a feminist Western and I was making a, a show about fathers and sons. In that case, this is mothers and daughters, but it's just, it's, it's a color for me. It's just something different. It's about the family you choose versus the family you're born into is a huge thing for me. I'm fascinated by that. And, um, and and in the case of Godless, for example, he 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 was sort of found by this man and turned into something terrible. In the case of um, of Queen's Gambit, she isolates herself. She's an orphan. She has no parents, so she kind of keeps isolated. And then when she meets Alma Wheatley, um, the woman who adopts her because Alma's lonely, basically, and just wants a plaything, um, they develop a real relationship and they actually decide they need each other. And by the end of the story, she has this whole family. She has all these, these people okay. in, in her life. So that's really what it is. It's less the specifics of mothers and sons and mothers and daughters or fathers and sons and fathers and daughters than it is this notion of connection. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll follow up on that a little bit later. But um, as, I, I mean, I've read a lot. I know uh, people who are listening to this uh, webinar have read about a lot about um, um, Anya Taylor-Joy and her stunning performance as Beth, and of course, the lens is always on her, whether she's alone at home, in a stranger's apartment, on a plane, uh, on her bed at night. When I was re-watching, I just her face and her eyes and the expressivity, and also how you often film her kind of cast in shadow, so it's just, you know, one eye, but very, very serious um, emotion read through her facial expressions. Um, can you tell us more about how you came to cast her for the role? I mean, I've read that, you know, you sent her the novel, she was on your short list. 
she'd come out of you know a lot of acclaim from the 2016 film The Witch. But I just I just would want to know more about how you came to cast her. Did it happen quickly? What were you because so much rides on that performance? Yeah, I would say everything rides on it. And you know, the one thing you can't you can't fix is casting. If you make a mistake in casting, you it's not you can't fix that in the cutting room. <laughs> there are many problems you can fix later, but but casting the wrong person isn't one of them. Um, I love The Witch, and I also loved a movie she did called Thoroughbreds, um, which I'd watched actually for the other actor because um, I already kind of knew about Anya, and I was watching it for Olivia Cook, um, thinking about her, and I couldn't stop staring at Anya just couldn't stop. I just thought she's riveting in every scene she's in. She's just really, and so I watched a few other things that she'd done, some early work that she'd done. And I realized that because the chess matches, in order to, to in order to make the show work, the way the, especially the way the book worked, if you don't know anything about chess, you're riveted in the book. Um, and he does way more chess description in the book and way more games than we do in the in the series. But I understood that if we're going to do this, you have to see what is the least amount of chess you can get away with, you know, and also more in that direction, what is the least amount of chess explanation you can get away with, you know, so that is a, a huge, huge issue. Number one, number two is you had to, I had to make sure that for every single chess match, you understood the emotional context, where you're at in the story, so that um, um, you, you, you knew the stakes, the emotional stakes. It's not just about winning or losing, what's happening inside of her. So to do that, you needed a really specific actor. You needed somebody that could do it all on their face and you would never get tired of their face. Their face brings you in. And that's what Sidney Pollack used to call a creature that the best actors are creatures, that they're not, they're not just beautiful, there's something else that keep you studying them and seeing them differently every time you see them. And that was Anya. And um, I just knew it, I'd seen her on film. I, I, I literally met her and offered her the part and she had literally come to meet, we met in London to accept the part. It was one of those, there was no dance, no anything. She just knew it was right for her and I knew she was right for it. So um, that's how it happened. And again, there was no script. There's no script for much of the casting. I had to, I'd written the first episode, but I really did most of the adaptation part while I was in post, in pre-production in Berlin. I was also writing each of the episodes. Right. Well, it's also, it is the way she looks and her face. And I mean, it's, and it is mesmerizing, but there's, something in the way she moves. Um, there's something, and I don't mean yeah. not just her body, but even the way she moves, the moves chess pieces and with a, a kind of, um, uh, there's a certain flair to it. And um, and I, I understand she was a dancer and a model. And, um, but I think it's that the way that her body moves is also very important and conveys all kinds of, from awkwardness to this, you know, as her confidence builds and the confidence walk is pretty impressive. And watch her first walk. I mean, the first time she comes down the stairs in the orphanage and walks to meet the parents who are going to adopt her for the first time, it's a big frumpy walk. It's like, a, and then when she walks across the street to the department store with her mom for the first time, she has, it's a very strange inelegant kind of walk. And she, she begins to, to, 
you know, develop it as she gets more and more glamorous, because again, she's studying other people. She's looking at other Natalie Wood or musicians or whatever. And each time she sees someone, she adjusts to be more like them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to move on a little bit, I I was really moved by uh, Morel Heller's performance as Alma. Um, uh, You know, the, the kind of damaged, compassionate woman who eventually welcomes Beth to her home. She's a kind of Betty Friedan, 50s housewife. Um, now Heller is the director of Can You Ever Can You Ever Forgive Me and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which I also really liked. And I understand she's a friend of yours. And I read somewhere that you originally cast her as Beth's birth mother, and then and then made a change. So can you tell us why you made that change and why you cast her as Alma? Um, I was her mentor at Sundance at the Writers Lab a dozen years ago when she brought Diary of a Teenage Girl. Um, she, she was a writer director in the lab and she was an actress who wanted to, to take more control of her destiny. And she had just done small off Broadway things. Her husband is Yorma Tacone of Lonely Island. So she had done some of those movies with him, but she'd never done anything big. And we met and we became friends and, um, I hadn't spoken to her in over a year when she emailed me because I was going to go shoot. Um, a film called The Walk Among the Tombstones in New York City. And she said, um, uh, I'm here, I would, you know, we'd love to see you. And, you know, maybe, you know, if you want me to do something, I think I'm going to go on audition for your casting director. And I thought, oh, okay. So I gave her a part in the film, not thinking anything of it, because I knew she was an actor. I didn't make her read. I just said, here, I'll cast you as this. And she came in And she does this little part, which ended up getting cut out, but she was so good. I remember sitting there thinking, feeling foolish, going, oh my gosh, she is a really amazing actress. Mm -hmm. And I apologized to her. I said, okay, so I've totally uh, uh, underutilized you. um, And I I had no idea you were this good. I'm going to write something for you. We're going to work together. So we were friends. I tried to get her to play a role in Godless, but she was shooting Can You Ever Forgive Me? And so I cast her in this and it was going to be for the mother. So it was going to be for a much smaller, smaller role. But um, I lost the actress who I had cast as Alma Wheatley. And interestingly enough, while I was writing the script, I like to visualize people, usually not actors I'm, I'm trying to get, usually dead actors, <laughs> you know, so that I'm never disappointed. Um, um, you, you know, I always joke that it's always Steve McQueen, but it kind of is always Steve McQueen for me, no matter what, whether they're a kid or whoever. Um, but for Mrs. Wheatley, I kept thinking about Mari's face because she has this incredibly sympathetic face with those black eyes and she's amazing. And, um, but if you saw her before, if you Google her, she has bangs like you and she has this kind of long hair and she doesn't look anything like Alma Wheatley, but that face, you cannot, she's a creature. And so um, I would tell Ellen Lewis, the casting director, when we were casting, I said, this is sort of the physical vibe I want is Mari Heller. And I would say that over and over again. And we cast someone terrific and it was just a scheduling thing and it couldn't work out. And Bill Horberg, the producer said to me, we were scouting in Toronto because we shot four or five days there. And um, Bill said, well, you know, you kept always talking about Mari Heller. Why don't you just cast her? And I said, because Netflix will never go for that. And and said, she hasn't really done anything. He said, well, you don't get what you don't ask for. Let's just ask. And so I asked them and they said, well, is there any film on her? 
I said, no, <laughs> I don't have any film on her. I said, um, cause I'd cut her out of the movie. I said, um, I don't have any film, but here's an interview she did for the Hollywood reporter where she's sitting at a table with a bunch of male reporters, you know, and I mean, I'm sorry, male directors. And there she is for this round table. And I said, you'll get a sense of her voice and her vibe. She'll look very different, but check it out. And they said, they watched it and they said, well, if you think she can do it, go for it. And at that point, I thought that they had no faith in the show. They were so easy. I thought, okay, they must not really care about the show. And Mari thought the same thing when I called her up and I said, how would you like to take the other part? And she said, no, Netflix will never let me do that. And I said, they already have. I, I've spoken with them. It's a done deal. If you want to do it, I'd love to have you play basically the second lead of the, yeah. of the show. And um, she was off shooting a commercial, directing a commercial, and, and she flipped out for a day or two and then, and then, and did it and obviously did it with with aplomb it was amazing amazing, oh, totally. amazing from the first second you know and when i saw her by the way first time she came out of the hair and makeup trailer for her hair and makeup test um she looked like mrs wheatley you know that betty davis look that she has in the show yeah 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 uh, you know i i'm not alone but i loved alma and beth's relationship and the way that it exists somewhere between sisterhood and parenthood um, and what I really loved was how Alma comes alive uh, through her newfound role as an agent and confidant for Beth. Um, but most of all, before her death, she, she gains this liberating new lease on life, engages, engages in a thrilling sexual relationship with her former pen pal in Mexico City, and finally fulfills her lifelong dream of playing piano for an audience. And of course, the piano performance was not in the novel, uh, nor was she a pianist or anything like that, you added that. Um, most mothers in classical women films never get to fulfill dreams for themselves. You know, think Auntie Mae. Why was it important to you that Alma does? Again, so much of this stuff comes from a place of just storytelling gut. It's less about I want to make this point or that point. Sometimes I'll push against something. Right. Um, um, uh, and there's there is a huge thing in in the Queen's Gambit that I push against, which we'll talk about in a second, but. But in terms of that sort of thing, I just wanted her to be more interesting. I wanted there to be more, more to her and more complicated and more surprising. I'm always looking for what's, what would be surprising about this woman who's this lonely housewife on this little street in Lexington, Kentucky? You know, what if she had her own dreams that were thwarted? What if she was her own sort of genius? Yes. You know, that might be really interesting. And um, um, I just thought about, playing with playing with that a little bit and it's just it's always for me is this the best version of the story and sometimes the best version is in the novel and sometimes the novel needs something else it, it works great when you read it but to watch it it's a different kind of investment when you watch something it's a different kind you're pulled in for different reasons than you are in a book and you only have sight and sound you know to work with so sometimes you want something a little more interesting and her playing the piano um does both and so right. i i and also the other thing that i would would play against in the show which is a huge thing which is there's always a sense that something bad is going to happen and it's shot like a thriller there's the tone is a very kind of unsettled tone sometimes but it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen because we're copying out I was just allergic to it all the way through the writing of it. I was allergic to have anything bad. In the book, 
it doesn't happen either. There may be things, there's some bad things that happen in the orphanage, actually between her and Jolene that I got rid of. Um, But I just felt like, no, that's not what it is. And so if that feeling is there and you're waiting for that, that's on you because this is about something else. This is about exactly what I'm saying it's about. It's about the cost of genius, not about people who've abused her. Right. Although even in the novel, I mean, I was I was shocked with you know, Jolene kind of sexual abuse. She's 12. Uh, Beth is eight. But it's also rendered as more complicated. I don't know. It's it's complicated, but it is abuse. She doesn't want it to happen. Um, she is curious about sex. She's but she doesn't really understand. Um, but yeah, well, back to the Alma character, I just want to say I, I really loved it. It was very um, fulfilling to me to me to see this this fantasy of this of this housewife who gets to live her dream because that it's a rare story that is told. Um, in any case, just to move on, you know, and I'm sure you've talked about this in other interviews, and but I think the audience here would appreciate you hear, hearing from you about this. You know, much has been written about how much the Queen's Gambit gets right about chess. I understand you're a chess player. I'm not. Many critics have also noted that viewers don't need to know anything about chess to enjoy the series. But it seems like it would be a huge challenge to um, put a cerebral sport like chess on the screen. Um, although, of course, as we learn through the story, you know, in many places, people are gathering to watch this sport being played with all kinds of different screens um, and ways for them to understand what the moves are and what's happening. But how did you handle what, what was your strategy in, in, in filming the various matches? Um, you know, because there's times like I think it's in episode, I think it's in the third episode where um, uh, it's a split screen. It's in it's at um, Athens, Ohio. Oh, in the fourth in the yeah. fourth episode. Yeah, fourth episode. Sorry, I I had it. But so you know, could you talk a little bit about the challenges of of, of staging chess? Because the novel has many many chess games too, but very technically explained. Um, panic was a good motivator for me because I was obsessed with, you know, oh my God, how I know when I read it, it's cinematic, but I'm not sure how to make it cinematic. And so there were, your question kind of encompasses many things that all lead to an aesthetic. Um, um, the first thing I would say is I had two amazing chess advisors. I had Bruce Pandolfini, who's one of the premier chess teachers in the world. He taught the young man from Searching for Bobby Fischer. Um, Ben Kingsley plays him in that movie. He's been around forever. He was Walter Tevis's chess consultant. Um, Simon and Schuster gave him to Walter and he spent a lot of time with Walter going over the stuff in the book and Walter ended up doing none of it. (laughs) Um, But Bruce had one great suggestion for him and that was the title. So the title, The Queen's Gambit, comes from Bruce Pandolfini. Um, and then I had Gary Kasparov. And Gary Kasparov was somebody I originally met with. Um, we have some mutual friends, and, and Bruce knows him. And I met him here in New York. And we originally, I wanted him to play Borgoff. I thought he would be a great Borgoff. I thought he could do it. And um, um, and I'm, I love casting people who are not necessarily normally actors but you they have whatever that thing is that you want and he's he would have been great but he couldn't do it because he speaks and he has all these speaking engagements and i think he makes a fortune doing that and didn't want to give that up so so but he became my consultant 
And he gave me so much insight into how people feel and think. It wasn't just about, he did design some chess games in the, in the last episode, but otherwise we were taking games from the book and expanding them and or correcting them. And that was a lot of Bruce. And we had German consultants too, two guys who were always on set and Bruce couldn't be there who were lovely. Um, but he, all that conversation in the elevator where they're talking about her in Mexico City, that all came from Gary. That was all from Gary or um, certain expressions should be finished this on the board. Things that I love, little telling details like that, you know, dialogue. Um, the fact that KGB would follow Borgov around, just all more. And I mean, so many things I'm, I'm drawing blank, but he was a huge help that way. Nice. The other thing that we did, and then I'll get, in, get it's all going to lead to the whole aesthetic. The other thing we did is we had a chess summit in Berlin because we shot 90%, 95% of the show in Germany. And so we invited the editor to come. So our editor came. We had the whole art department, meaning production designer, props, everybody. Bruce was there. Um, so what we could do is, and the cinematographer was there, we were all there so that we could go over every single chess match. And by then we had all our locations. We waited in to make sure we had all our locations. And we had a huge long table with every chess board and chess piece from every single match. So visually we could look at them all together. And so you would say the first tournament in Kentucky, what would the boards be made out of paper? Yes, they would. What would the pieces be? How many people would be there? Here's our location. Is this location real? You know, and would there be bystanders? Would they be at the table? Would they be sitting down? Um, can we get away with not having them play a bunch of games at the very end? The way you do in a championship, you may play 12 games mm -hmm. with, you know, one person. But we were doing a different kind of tournament, which back then, you know, Bruce was saying, that's fine. And so we'd go over each game, each location, each right down to the chess pieces. So that was a huge, huge help for everybody because we locked in and we could now kind of organize around these spaces. I could start thinking about how to shoot, what is important in each game, because I know from the script what's important. So now how are we going to cover this game? You know, what are we going to, you know, are we going to be more on faces? She plays a young man in Mexico City, the young German kid right. who's a prodigy. The first part of the game is a lot of moves on the board. When they adjourn and she comes back the next day, you never see the chessboard until he lays his kingdom when he says, I'll resign the old fashioned way, which was also a Gary Kasparov line. Wow. So, so, so they, so all of that led to now we could kind of organize and think about, and then besides our normal, you know, conversations we have, there's a palette that I talk about with the production designer, you know, the colors and, and I talk about with the, all our, all the normal rules of filmmaking, what lenses are we going to use and not use so that it's all, you know, consistent. What, what are our kind of aesthetic rules for self? Now we knew what we had to capture. We knew what was important. We knew, you know, what things to look at in the Russian hall. We knew we were going to have these guys on ladders. Yeah. We knew. So how are we going to use the, the, so, so every day for hours, the cinematographer and I would, would shot list the chess games yeah. and just every angle, whether it's in the basement with Mr. Scheibel when are we going to be just in a simple two shot? When are we going to be down on the board? When are we going to be really close so that we knew yeah. how to shoot? Are we going to go, how are we going to show time? Because these games are, four, you know, three, four hours. We can't do that. And some people were giving me a hard time for their moving too fast. But if, you know, <laughs> the show will be, you know, 112 hours long. So, um, so we would design all of, all of that. 
and all of that became and then and then there were the other creative thing was the ceiling all the stuff on the ceiling all and every game on any chessboard whether it's on the ceiling or on the table were all accurate moves yeah. they were all accurate moves there was a couple times where i made a cut and sometimes one board doesn't the display board doesn't necessarily match exactly but i think it's like twice in the whole show and naturally gary caught them and they were during his game that he designed so <laughs> proper a proper hard time but i said gary i can't <laughs> so um um but the other thing was on the ceiling i knew that they were going to be like bats hanging upside down that's how they're described in the script yeah. and so and in the book it just says she plays on the roof and i didn't want to do some kind of animated a beautiful mind thing i wanted something that reflected her that she has sort of dark internal self and i thought the pieces should be if she's conjuring them then they should be a real um reflection of of her and that took a long time we we had to storyboard all those shots because they're they're effect shots and we have to begin you have to shoot them very precisely and all know all of the angles and exactly how the camera is going to move um for the the digital work that would come later but like there's no roof on the dormitory there's no ceiling it's just it's, it's you know it's a stage so that's all created so all that had to be figured out and that's going to be part of the aesthetic and what will the pieces look like are they going to be the same look for the pieces no matter where they are we decided yes um we're not going to we're not going to change them when she sees her old friends they're always they're not going to reflect the pieces on the board they're the pieces in her head so all these questions you have to answer yeah. and then there's practical stuff that happens um because i don't want to show whole games i always knew that in the case of athens in the, rather in the case of ohio the 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 us championships uh in the script she he just makes a move and you cut out of the game because i thought that would be really interesting to not you think you're going to see the whole game we've already seen them play chess and i want her the i don't want to undermine her beating borgoff later so it was just better to cut right to the bar after and realize but we only had through quirk of schedule we only had and it was it, it called out a split screen in that um in the script i was thinking about doing it but i only had four hours to shoot that location oh. just for reasons i can't get into but it was just complicated practical reasons to shoot this class this lecture hall and so and one of the shots was an extremely complicated shot where the cameras pulled up on a track backwards above the seats once they go and walk around we did it practically because it just it was it gave us an interesting look. So we I ended up I ended up realizing that this we only could get certain shots. So and we didn't have a lot of time for coverage. So the the quad screen became the way to solve the problem to just really lean into it. And what I did is before we started shooting that day I played the piece of music which was classical gas for the whole yeah. crew, all the actors I sat them down in this lecture hall I blasted the song and I said everything we do today has to be that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we did and we we did it in 4 hours but that's why wow. was, we didn't have enough so we that's one of those times where you're trying to make something out of nothing and all of these things so there's the practical side of things and the aesthetic side of things that that kind of meet like you know you're solving problems but you're also trying to have a cohesive you know right. consistent look. Sorry, I know I went on there, but no, no, no. It's really I, I, I. It just seemed like such a huge challenge, not to mention trying to get the inner life of this character externalized. But of course, you've got 
you know, all kinds of registers to play with. I'll get to that in a minute too. But you mentioned um, that the series was shot um, in Berlin and, and some other locations. Um, and of course, that's a long way from Lexington, Kentucky. So what made you go to Berlin? And I've read some things, but, it, you know, tell us why Berlin became the location. So the book takes place in Lexington, Kentucky, Cincinnati, Ohio, um, the University of Ohio, Las Vegas, Mexico City, New York City, um, um, Paris, France, Moscow. Um, what am I leaving out? <laughs> so it's all over the world and all over the country. So that's already a gigantic production puzzle. Yeah. So we thought maybe we would be based in New York and travel, send units to Mexico and to some places and then just come back to New York just to get kind of footage. Mm -hmm. Couldn't do that because I had $38 million to make the show, which is not a lot. And so we, and then we had 35, I think. So we were trying to come up with a formula whereby we could shoot everything in as few places as possible, obviously. And we thought Berlin could stand in for a lot of Europe. And it just so happens that the production designer I really wanted was based there. Uli Hanisch, who I you know, really wanted to work with since I'd seen Babylon Berlin, he was there. Berlin, yeah. Amazing. And so we thought, well, let's go. And he said, there's a lot more here than you think, because we were looking in Prague, we were looking in every, we looked at Canada was a bust because we could have shot in upstate New York in um, Albany or up there, further up there. It has an old New York feeling, old buildings that would have worked for the 50s in New York City and 60s but too expensive to move around. Toronto is now all glass, it's a city of glass. And so we had to go outside of Toronto. We were at least just trying to find some of Kentucky. And so when we went to Berlin, we found on our first you know, recce there, we found a building that could be Las Vegas. That building she walks into is there. It's a, it's wow. a real building there. Um, we found a place that could be the Moscow Hall. We found Paris. Museum Island in Berlin. We found um, um, Mexico City, the zoo, we could do at the zoo there. Um, and I realized if it's raining or if there's bad weather, you know, that could become a thing in the story. It's almost funny. And um, that will also help obfuscate where we are. So we thought about that. So um, I'm trying to think where else. Oh, outside of Berlin, we found the Methuen home. Wow. And the first floor, the basement where she goes to play Mr. Scheibel is the basement of a prison somewhere in Berlin. The the dormitory is a separate stage that we built, um, but we found, but otherwise the main floor um, is there in in this, this home that we found um, outside Berlin. So everywhere, you know, so all of this, all of these local, we kept adding things that we could do and it got down to the point where we were at first two weeks in Toronto, then one week in Toronto. We ended up only shooting five days in Toronto. So the only things, basically, for all intents and purposes, everything you see inside is in Germany. Anything interior with, with, with one exception, the drugstore that she goes to um, in Lexington is, is, is in Germany. Otherwise, in Toronto, we shot her street where the little blue house is on. Again, just the exterior, the porch, 
and the backyard and the street itself. Her, the girl, Margaret, whose house she goes to, that's around the corner. Her real father's house, her birth father's house, when the mother goes to try and drop her off there, that's in the same area. We shot um, the department store just for the bus pulling up and them crossing the street. We shot the arrival at Benny's apartment in Toronto, which just had two little facades, and then it's all digital. Wow. We shot um, uh, the the Ohio State the Ohio, University of Ohio exterior there. The the student union where she's reading a book during that whole sequence is in Germany. The dorm room where she's the shadows come down behind her that is at that location too. Um, and then I'm trying to think, oh, and her, the car accident site is in Toronto, but the trailer that she and her mom lived, Germany. Yeah. Um, yeah. So on and on like that. So we just kept figuring out how to do it. And obviously there's a lot of stuff that that's in the digital world, when she's walking into the hotel in Las Vegas, that's all blue screen. You know, that's all the strip is all, you know, fake, but the building she walks into and the whole hotel lobby with the giant dice we built in this existing kind of convention hall. So we built the whole hotel lobby and the same with the Mexico City tournament. That's a real, that's a lobby of a big theater in Mita. And we, we, we turned it into a hotel, that whole space. The pool, the swimming pool is just this all cement area, outdoor area in the old East Berlin that we had a three-story blue screen that became the hotel in the background. We just, there's a little structure there that because it was dark and I had it rain, you didn't have to see, it looked like, oh, there's the kind of outdoor bar and all of this. And it was much more beautiful to have her go swim in the rain anyway. So, um, and, and I made it night so that the, it's, it's, the hotel is at night. Moscow is is Karl Marx LA in, in Berlin, you know, again, with 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 a lot of use of, of digital background, when she walks out of the Moscow Hall across the street, the river, blah, 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 blah on and on. I, no, the settings are so, they're so stunning. And I mean, and Mexico City, the hotel, and oh my God, and just the colors and all of these grand lobbies and and other things like Benny's kind of dilapidated apartment or all the stage over decorated chancy uh, <laughs> house. Um, but let, let's move since um, I'm watching my time here. Um, I wanted to just have a few more questions and then we can open up for audience. Um, I was really, I was deeply impressed with the series and the books, very non-judgmental treatment of addiction and alcohol abuse. But I also love the treatment of sexuality among young adults the awkwardness between uh, Beth and Harry Beltic, for instance, or, but also the performativity and fluidity of sexuality when Beth seduces, of all people, Harry Beltic to Peggy Lee's fever, um, and even gives a little, you know, hip bump at the right moment. It's perfect. Um, you know, Towns has a gay companion, Roger, in Las Vegas, and, and Beth is infatuated with the French model, Cleo. These were, none of these was, none of this was in the novel. So, can you tell us why you, you found it important to treat sexuality in this way? It just seemed fun. It just seemed like it made it more of a, a more cinematic and more interesting and more visual and more surprising. And, you know, I'm sure I tried a version of how it was in the book and I just thought about standing there on the set and, and if, if there would be enough to, to kind of warrant us all standing there on the set. And right. so I just kept thinking about what would be surprising, what would be, you know, an interesting way to, to turn this on its head or do something different. And, and 
it's it's there was already a sexy quality to to the way I was thinking about all of it, and I thought this would just add to it. This would just make it if if there is that kind of loose the fluidity, as you say, if there was that way, I thought it would just be would be better. It'd just be more interesting to 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 do it. It was more for fun, and you know, it was it, there's a kind of winking quality to all of that. Right, right. Um, so the Queen's Gambit is, you know, a period piece set during the Cold War, uh, but this isn't your conventional Cold War uh, tale. The Soviet players are professional and respectful. Collaboration is key to their success. Uh, and American individualism proves to be a handicap in mastering the game. In fact, it's only with the collective help of the chess playing men from her past that Beth is able to take home the title. Why do you think this, this story was important to Tevis and Reagan's America in 1983? Um, and why is it important for you to make this now? Because you know, it's interesting when the, when the series landed, it, you know, right, the 24th of October? And um, you know, right before the election and after and people watching it, there's certain pleasure, of course, in people who play by the rules and they, they resign and they, there's, there's something to the, the game itself. But I, I wondered if you knew anything about Tevis writing at this time or why you found it something you wanted to tell now. Um, it's another one of those things that's, that's only kind of hinted at in the book because in the book, Towns doesn't go to Russia. He doesn't show up in Moscow right. and it's only Benny on the telephone. Right. And um, I wanted them all to be there and I wanted Towns to show up because he's her, her true friend. And, um, and she wasn't, you know, I thought that they had unfinished business that they, right. they needed to attend to. It just seemed like more of a great thing. It was again, Gary Kasparov who told me, gave me the speech, Americans, they're all such individualists, but you know what the Soviet, that speech that Benny gives was, I had dinner with Gary in Berlin one night and he was telling me that and I got out my notebook and started scribbling because I thought, oh my God, that will actually make that payoff, not just be this, uh, this sentimental thing. It will be a real payoff to a setup in the script will actually be, you know, there's actually a good story beat reason for it there. It's actually an answer to, to a kind of question you didn't know was being asked in the background and the way all good movie payoffs are. And so having them all there and her not being the individualist, that I just thought was, again, an accident that, that was great. Agreed. So the novel's politics are not only Cold War politics, but the politics of the burgeoning women's movement and certainly civil rights era. And Jolene, played by Moses Ingram in her first uh, on-screen role, is the only Black child at the orphanage. Later in life, she studies political sciences. There's changes that from that you add in, uh, to the to the to the series, um, and she tries to step beyond the narrow path for Black women in the '60s. Significantly, though, in the novel, it is Beth who seeks out the adult Jolene, and in fact, in the novel, she's she often is reaching out for Jolene. Um, Whereas in your series, it is Jolene who shows up at Beth's house uh, unannounced and just in time. So can you talk about why you made that change um, that for Jolene to come on the, to find uh, Beth? Yeah, in the book, she just realizes she needs help and she can't do it alone. And Jolene shows up and there's this Rocky-like sequence where, um, um, you know, there's this Rocky-like sequence where where Jolene, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, 
what do you say, you know, gets her in shape. They go and they run, they go jogging, they do all this stuff and, and so on. And it just felt ridiculous to me. And um, I also didn't think Beth would call her. I didn't think she was on Beth's mind. I didn't think I didn't have a way to keep her on her mind. It just, it would be weird to have her pick up the phone at that point in the story and call Jolene. It would be, it would, it would be strange. Be why is she calling Jolene? And Jolene in the orphanage sort of showed her the kind of ropes of the orphanage, but she didn't help her. She was never really helping her. So I thought it would be better if Jolene came. Jolene doesn't show up in the nick of time. She shows up just to tell her that she shows up in the middle of just disaster to tell her that Mr. Scheibel died. The only reason she showed up is, you know, I thought we'd, we'd go down there and, you know, but she's there and she sees she spends, you know, a, a night or two with her, but it's not this whole thing. And the only thing they do that's at all athletic is 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 silly. Yeah. They play squash because right. she had been playing squash with this guy she was dating, mm-hmm. and um, um, and so and they can't play. They're terrible. They end up just sitting there and having a conversation. So I just thought that was more interesting, and I'm, I'm getting the. Um, the you know magic black savior criticism but i think she was just her friend she was never her savior they were friends since they were little you know and then they fell out of touch and it was about family and that's the speech it's just i'm just another member of your family quit making this into a big deal no i'm just not and so that for me was was i felt more real to me whether or not i'm i'm I'm, you know, it's problematic, you know, in some, in some political way. I don't, I honestly don't know that it is. And Moses and I certainly talked a lot about it. And I just feel like they were just connected. They were both outcasts. That's really what it was. One wasn't. Yeah. I loved her. her. Was that a red Corvair? Yeah. Maroon. (laughs) Maroon. I, it's yeah. actually two. There's one in Toronto and one in uh, Germany. We had to get two of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, funny. I was a delivery girl for a pharmacy in my teens, and I drove a Corvair unsafe at any speed. Yeah, you're oh, still alive. I am. <laughs> uh, well, last question for me, and then we'll um, open up. But the, the series ending really answers to the beginning. After her big win over Borgov, um, and fittingly dressed as the White Queen, kind of Chanel White Queen, Beth decides to get out of the car, rushing her to the airport to play chess with ordinary Soviets on the Moscow streets. In the novel, she says, says she says this, they looked like old men anywhere, like a multitude of incarnations of Mr. Scheibel. Um, can you talk more about the, the conclusion to the series and its, its hopefulness? And again, I, I, I thought this too, but you've clarified a lot through this conversation that it was, it seemed to be about her finding connections with others in her in her her alternate family, the family that she chooses, um, you know, with Benny and Towns and Harry and Matt and Mike and Jolene, as well as her connection, the kind of aesthetic pleasure, sheer aesthetic pleasure of the game and people who love the game, that it, it's not an ideological game. It's a, a love for its symmetry, its possibility, it's, it's 64 squares. So just say a little bit about the ending, and then I'm sure I've, I've gone a little bit longer, and uh, there will be people wanting to ask questions as well. So, Yeah, you kind of answered it. I mean, for me, it was my favorite scene in the book. I loved it. It was just my absolute, and there's nothing better in a film or a book to have your favorite scene be the last one. 
<laughs> um, and it was it was just beautiful. It was just so beautiful in the book. And um, I really felt like it was so smart because it's joy. It's pure joy. She just loves it and call it an addiction, call it whatever, but she, she loves it. It is this thing that she says is beautiful. It is, she may, it may have elicited, you know, dark impulses and she may have all these things swirling around, but this game she loves and sitting down with these people who are all very safe, very, these old men, these Mr. Shy, people even think I cast the same actor the Russian gentleman, I thought, is that Bill Camp in makeup? I said, no, no, it's a famous Russian actor. So, but, but um, um, she, it's just joy. And that was important for me to see, he starts talking about politics again and the, the, her, her, you know, escort is talking about all this stuff. She doesn't want anything to do with that. And she wants to go back to the park where people are just playing without yeah. any worry about their rating or anything. Right. And so um, I just thought, and the book says, I think the last line of the book is, do you want to play chess? And I thought, first of all, they're sitting at a chess table. It would be weird if you actually saw this for her to say, do you want to? And so I just thought, because it's just this joyful moment, she just says, let's play. Yeah, so yeah. it's just about play. That's really what it is for me. And so um, that was my thinking, was just to have her be finally this, she's, 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 kind of for that moment at least very comfortable in her own skin yeah so i want to invite um emily zinn she's the associate director here at the carsey wolf center to uh field questions from the audience so over to you emily thanks okay. hi scott so we have so many questions but we picked a few of them that we wanted to ask you so the the first one i have is from sophia stewart who says you've mentioned that douglas cirque was a big influence on the series uh, can you talk a little about your process to get the atmosphere you want to conjure up on screen with regard to Cirque or other influences? Well, Cirque used color, you know. Um, I just thought that that color would be a huge, interesting thing, whether it's absent in the first episode in the last episode. You know, the orphanage episode doesn't have a lot of color and Moscow doesn't have a lot of color. Um, and so I just love the way he uses it that feels... You know, everyone thinks Mad Men did that first, but no, he did that first. And what he did was amazing. You would, they were real environments and you were kind of comfortable to be there, even though uncomfortable things were happening in his, his melodramas. So we talked, and we talked about her house, you know, early on when we were in pre-production that it was going to be this Douglas Cirque-like kind of, kind of feeling her bedroom, everything, the way we were, you know, going to, going to shoot it, all of that. So it was just an interesting, and every location, Las Vegas, Mexico, Paris, they all have a slightly different palette. It all grows out of the same palette, but it's all it's all adjusted. Nice. Um, we also have a question that several people have asked um, about how you approach the screenplay adaptation of Queen's Gambit as a series of episodes rather than as a feature film. So the, the construction of episodes introduces a level of compartmentalization in the story. Um, and the questioner is curious about how your thought process differs um, and how you organize your thinking when working with an episodic structure. Uh, it's messy. I mean, both with God, Godless was six scripts that turned into seven episodes. 
And I said, I'm never going to make that mistake again. And yet on this, I wrote six scripts and they turned into seven episodes. So clearly, however, I'm guessing how they're going to end. I'm wrong when I'm writing. I just sort of, it's a, a guess, a gut feeling. This is a good ending. Episode one used to go on much longer. There's a ton of scenes that are wonderful after she she gets punished. And there's a scene with the which it was actually uh, Christiane Seidel's greatest scene when she punishes her for the pills and she's forced to do all these chores for Miss Lonsdale in chapel. And it's like, it's great, but you get it. So, and we had a huge sequence that we shot of chess on the ceiling too, that takes her, you start on her, you go up to the ceiling, the, there's all these chess games and then you come down to her and when she said that the lights come up and the, the daylight comes and then when he walks in, which is there now, the orderly, she's now older and cut it. It was beautiful. I hated to cut it, but the rhythm was off. So you just, I write it like a long movie. I shoot it like a long movie. I don't shoot it an episode at a time. I shoot, you know, we shoot out locations the way you would a film. And I write it, I'm just thinking of rhythm. When is a good time to stop? When is a good time to stop? everyone who joined us for this uh, conversation and mostly thank to you Scott for uh, making this series and all of your other work and godless and, and it's been a real privilege to talk to you about this um, especially because you know I personally found it very hard to read or watch fiction um, for a very long time in this pandemic and other things and once I found myself in this world, it just, it really, I think this is like part of the popularity, part of it. it as I said, there's something very, I mean, everybody loves a coming of age story and, and we love, you know, what will she wear next? And, um, <laughs> and before and after stories, beloved of women's magazines. But I think the story is very compelling and I, I'm, I'm really honored to have been able to talk to you about it here today. So thanks for being with us. My pleasure. It was a real treat. Those were great questions, and it was a really fun conversation. So yeah. thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.